this is just a really difficult question. <laughs> it's just so hard. Back in 2007, there were just 2.5 million cohabiting couples compared with our 3.38 million today. Resolution wants something that's going to help families. Then we can provide much better service for our clients and we can run our practices better. Welcome to the second episode of the Resolution podcast. In this episode, we are looking at cohabitation law, both in England and in Scotland, both the current state of the law and the case for reform. Before Simon introduces our fantastic speakers, I must make clear that all views expressed are people's personal views and nobody purports to represent any of the organisations that they are affiliated with. Thanks, Anita. We are really privileged to be joined this evening by three very passionate speakers on the topic of cohabitation. Joe Miles is a reader in family law and policy, a director of studies and fellow in law at Trinity College, the University of Cambridge, and she specialises in legal regulation of adult relationships and financial and property issues on relationship breakdown. She was seconded to the Law Commission for England and Wales between 2005 and 2007 to work as team lawyer on their cohabitation project. Our second speaker is Lucia Clark, a partner at the Edinburgh firm of Morton Fraser LLP. Lucia is also a dual qualified lawyer in Scotland and England and Wales. She's an accredited specialist in Scottish family law, and she frequently advises on matters of jurisdiction and complex cross-border cases. And finally, Graham Fraser. Graham is a partner at the North London firm OGR Stock Denton. He's an accredited specialist in trusts of land and cohabitation law and financial settlements on divorce involving complex assets and substantial wealth. He's chair of Resolutions Cohabitation Committee, which has an agenda to reform cohabitation law in England and Wales. Joe, are you able to tell us why cohabitation law is so important? Sure, I think there are a mix of um, demographic reasons. So that's to do with who we've got in the country and what kind of relationships people are in today. And also some legal reasons why it still matters, even though there have been some changes in the law recently that you might think make all this go away. So if we just start with the people, first of all, the cohabiting population has increased in size. So back in 2007, there were just 2.5 million cohabiting couples compared with our 3.38 million today. And of those, just under a million had dependent children compared with the 1.26 million uh, with dependent children today. Now, in terms of the legal context in which we need to think about this question today one thing that listeners might be jumping up and down thinking saying is oh well hang on what about this new civil partnership thing that came in a year or so ago so as people might know um, as a result of a legal case that went to the courts um, it was decided that civil partnership that was originally introduced for same-sex couples needed to be extended and made available as well to opposite sex couples. So that came in a year or so ago. So there are undoubtedly some cohabiting couples, like the couple in the case that made this become a thing. Uh, There are some couples who were only cohabiting because they didn't want to get married. Not because they don't want the legal rights and duties that come with marriage, but rather because they just don't like marriage as an institution. So there might be religious reasons for that, that insofar as people generally might think of marriage as a particularly religious institution, certainly religious connotations, that's not for them. Certainly historically at marriage, some would say still currently at marriage, some people would say it's a very patriarchal institution so very much the husband in charge and the wife submissive and you know whether that's historical or has any kind of current residue of that they just want none of that thank you very much so couples like that pointed at civil partnership and said hey look this is this brand new thing it's totally you know the partners are equal you get all the same rights and duties as marriage but you don't get to have all this religious and patriarchal and whatever else baggage that we don't want to sign up to so couples who who take that view have for the last year or so been able to sign up for civil partnership, get all the same rights and responsibilities as married couples, but avoid that baggage. Now, the the million dollar question, one of several that (laughs) we're going to discuss today, is what proportion of my 3.38 million are going to actually want that? And what proportion are going to be left? And my, my best guess on that is that it's going to be a relatively small minority of the 3.38 million who will, as a couple, want to sign up 
to that not least because it is marriage in all but name so it's it's got the the same legal intensity as marriage in terms of those rights and obligations that you're taking on which may just be way too much for some people but there are so many other reasons why people are cohabiting and not married that this just won't touch so there will be relationships that are what we call uneven relationships where one member of the couple probably does want to have their relationship formalized somehow but they're never going to persuade the other one to do it lots of couples who suffer from what we call optimism bias where they say oh yeah well we know we know that we're we haven't got the rights of spouses but that doesn't matter because we're not going to split up so it's not a problem and then of course they do and it is a problem <laughs> and still the common law marriage myth means that a lot of people out there just you know they're living their lives and assuming all is fine that they will be protected that they are protected by the law and they can be excused for thinking that for all sorts of reasons not least is those areas of law where that is absolutely true so uh, the classic context is social security law where unmarried and married couples are treated in exactly the same way for lots of lots of purposes and you fill in a form that says you know are you living as if you were married or words to that effect and they go yeah <laughs> and so I can readily imagine how people come away from that thinking, oh, right, so the state thinks that we are as good as marriage, so it's going to be fine. And of course, it's not. And notwithstanding various efforts by government over the years to better educate the public about that, we've still got a lot of people labouring under the common law marriage myth, at best uncertain, you know, whether they've got the rights or not, probably only a minority being clear that they haven't. So there are you know, all those people labouring under the common law marriage myth are not going to sign up for civil partnership because why would they do that? <laughs> They've got the rights already in their minds. So just some reasons why from a social and legal perspective, what the law does <laughs> with for two cohabitants, particularly when they split up, if they split up, is really important for a lot of people and by extension for a lot of children who are living with those couples. Sounds to me like you're saying and I think we all know from being in practice that the current state of the law can can leave some people very vulnerable. Yeah absolutely and query how many of them are really in a vulnerable category because obviously cohabitation is a is a vast range of relationships. So we think about spouses as a as a group of people. Actually lots of marriages are very different, right? There's not everybody lives the same life just because they're married. Young couples who are living together, they're in a romantic relationship, but a, a good part of the reason for living together is actually to save rent and other bills by shared household economy not because they, they feel a particular commitment to the relationship and then you've got people who are it's very much a trial so they are committed to each other but they don't want to get married yet because they kind of want to see how it works out or not as the case may be and some of those will go on to marry of course and and so when it comes to thinking you know how long do cohabiting relationships last that that's a weirdly difficult thing actually to work out because unlike spouses who conveniently sign bits of paper at the start and the end of their relationship which we can then count it's you know, straightforward so it's rather more tricky for ons to get a handle on how many there are at all never mind how long a given couple has been together so some of those who cease cohabiting actually haven't split up because they've got married <laughs> but then again there'll be there'll be couples who stay cohabiting for a very very long time longer than many marriages do yeah so what is it the average duration of a marriage at the point of divorce is something like 10 years i don't know there will be plenty of cohabiting couples like spouses who have who've gone way beyond that duration they've had their four children and all the rest of it and given the constraints with which all families have to act within so uh, the lack of affordable childcare, the gender pay gap the various drivers therefore that mean that with the best will in the world child care within couple relationships in a opposite sex couple relationship does still tend to involve the woman being the one who gives up entirely or certainly reduces her attachment to the labour market, which means that she's not progressing in any kind of career structure or you know, just not earning, not accruing pension in her own name and so on and so on. The pension one is a really big one. It's another pet topic of mine that we could do a whole other podcast on. But, you know, whether they're married or unmarried, there are relationships like that out there. And, you know, it's those, it's those sorts of relationships, particularly the cohabitants who've had children, whether they split up while the kids are still dependent or possibly worse they split up long after the kids have flown the nest but 
the, the woman probably has already accrued years of this sort of deficit, economic deficit, by having raised those children at home, not realising that actually, no, love, you're going to split up in 20 years time. So you ought to keep your toe in the market at least. And those are the women who will have no pension and for whom the word vulnerability is absolutely apposite. Thank you, Joe. That was a fantastic introduction. I mean, I think a lot of the listeners will know that there's one part of the United Kingdom that does have legislation that deals with rights for cohabitants, and also that in England and Wales there are remedies available for cohabiting couples. Most of us in practice will spend a reasonable amount of time involved in litigation or negotiation on behalf of people who weren't married, which implies there are some remedies available. So I thought it might be helpful if Graham and Lucia gave us a little outline of the current position for cohabitants in England and Wales, first of all, and then in Scotland. Graham? Thanks, Simon. I'm not going to go into a huge expose of Talata because that would take a very long time. But really, what to say about it is that the law is fragmented. Only parts of it are family law. Practitioners do get this work commonly. And the, the entry point usually for us is where they've got children because people care about their children and they go to lawyers because they will spend money to sort out arrangements with children. So traditionally, I've seen that as being the real entry point. Sorting out properties in England and Wales is a mess right now, because if there's a dispute, and there's an increasing number of them because there's been more property ownership, there's been a growth in property values over a large number of years, particularly in the south of England, then you can only resolve it in two ways in terms of Talata. One is by looking at the express trust, which may be definitive, but if you're unlucky enough to have signed a transfer at a certain point, and there are plenty of these cases, then you may get into what we call implied trust territory, where constructive trust is now king. And it's only been king, I think, since uh, Stack and Dowden and Jones and Kernod. The trouble with those cases, Joe probably know better than me, I think there are about 11 different judgments and none of them particularly align. And despite Brenda Hale's fervent hope that Stack and Dowden and Jones and Kernot would provide clarity, I'm afraid in practice it doesn't. And one particular area of concern is sole ownership cases. And my summary of this, it was, it was made clear in our webinar, and I think Kate Dowd was aptly put it, is there is insufficient respect for contribution. That is a very apt summary of the impact of Talata. The other area of law is Schedule 1. Uh, that is a remedy, to, remedy that does exist, financial provision for children. I've heard a lot of people say, well, you've got Schedule 1. But how often in practice do people use Schedule 1? Uh, we have the issue of proportionality. Very rarely do these cases get off the ground. The cost of completing the Form E1 and going through that process is very expensive. But that's before we get on to the whole process and the procedural nightmare of doing Talata. Family lawyers in England and Wales hate Talata. It's, it's, it's not a secret because it follows a completely different regime. You have to follow the civil procedure rules. We have had to adapt our guidance for it. I, I have to say, uh, Resolution has done a lot of work in the last 10 years or so, producing good practice guidance. We do our best. We even have FDRs now in the Chancery, or the, I think it's called Business and Property Courts. But the point is, it doesn't work well. And how does it feel on the ground? How does it feel as a practitioner? And how does it feel as a client? A client comes to see you, he or she, often she, but it can be a he, in a burns and burns situation. They've sacrificed 10 to 15 years of their life bringing up children. I say it could be a he or she because part-time working in this country has changed everything. You say, what are the remedies? Because I gave up work in, in, in terms of the economic decision that the couple made. It probably wasn't a conscious one. It was just who was the person who was working. And as a result of not being able to prove financial contributions, you've got problems. And you've got particular problems if it's a sole property case. And so you're in a really difficult position and you've got these very, very difficult rules that are very tough. There's very little leeway. Unlike the family procedure rules, there isn't that inbuilt discretion. There isn't that understanding that, that exists, a completely different set of rules. People are in a bad position. They're in a bad place. They're in a bad place in terms of litigation. And they're also in a very bad place, in my view, in terms of negotiated settlements. If you go into mediation, you go in with one hand behind 
behind your back because you know that the law isn't fair. But the person who's got the upper hand is the person who is in control of this. So these are the unfairnesses that I have seen throughout my career. I'd love to say it was getting better, but I'm afraid it isn't. And the pandemic, in my view, has heightened this because we know that mental health is declined. I use the little n, the little h there. The people who are in disputes, they're getting more pressured. They're getting more intense. I, I may be straying out of the question, Simon, and getting a bit political here. But to say, well, why don't you get married isn't going to solve the problem. Because what Joe explained is that lots of people don't get married. We have to deal with the clients as we find them. Nearly 7 million people are in this position and they have lots of children. Then as lawyers, we need to be properly equipped. And if we're living in a, in a decent society, in a civilised society, what we want to do is have the proper tools to provide family law solutions. And at the moment, the fundamental problem is that family law in England and Wales just does not permit us to do that. So huge frustration, I have to say, in England and Wales. Thank you, Graham. That was super eloquent, as one would expect. And we'll, we'll move on later to talk about what reform might look like in practice as well, because I know people have all sorts of questions about how it might actually work on the ground. But of course, as we said earlier, there's, there's one part of the UK where cohabitation law already exists. And presumably, that means that all these issues have been addressed, Lucia. Uh, I, I wish, I think, is the short answer to that question. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we're, we're not really in an idyllic situation north of the border with cohabitation law. Um, and, and in fact, as you know from our, our webinar debate, our, the Scottish Law Commission is looking at reviewing all of this just now, um, which it wouldn't be doing clearly and if it was working perfectly and as everyone wanted. But um, what, what might be helpful for the listeners is if I go through what we do have before I start criticising it. So we have had cohabitation provision for just about 15 years now, which is set out in the Family Law Scotland Act 2006. Now, in terms of what we had before that, we were probably from a worse starting point than south of the border because our property law is very different. We don't have Talata. We don't have any concept of kind of property trusts or anything like that. So the person who is on the title of the property is the owner of that property. And that is the person who benefits from it. So there was no kind of beneficial or implied trust or anything like that that was possible. We also didn't have and still do not have any equivalent of Schedule 1 to the Children Act. That that also isn't an option north of the border either. What we did have and what was actually used is a really old Roman law remedy, going back to the, the Roman law origins in, in Scotland of unjustified enrichment. That, that was there and that was used to an extent. What the 2006 Act then brought in is specific cohabitation provision. So the statutory test is really whether there's a need for compensation for net economic disadvantage that's been suffered by the applicant in the interests of the other party or the children, or in relation to economic advantage that's derived from contributions um, made by the applicant. Now, that's my paraphrase. Um, what is in the statute is uh, considerably longer and, and a bit repetitive and circular uh, and slightly confusingly worded. So you can see already there we're starting to get into to kind of slightly difficult territory. But that, that's the kind of essence of the, the test. The orders that can be sought are really just a capital sum. So we don't have an option for property transfer. We don't have an option for maintenance. We don't have any pension sharing. So the, the, the remedies are, are pretty limited. And in terms of the definition, so who can apply for for this, the definition of cohabitant is a member of a couple living together as if husband and wife or as if civil partners. And again, we, we start to get into slightly confusing territory because the definition then goes on and says, but the court also has to have regard to various factors, which are the length of the period lived together, nature of the relationship and the extent of the financial arrangements. So it, the definition itself is, is slightly circular again and perhaps not as clear as it could be. But I think that's perhaps a theoretical problem rather than a real one. We know a cohabitant when we see one, basically. The living together as if husband and wife is probably sufficient, in my view anyway. In terms of how, how it impacts on English considerations for reform, I think one of the interesting points is that we don't have any minimum period to live together in order to qualify for this claim. So in theory, you could have a claim made under the 2006 Act had the couple only been living together for a month. Now, it's quite unlikely, but it's theoretically possible. So that's a kind of quick run through 
through the test, the remedies, or the, the sole remedy, really, and, and the definitions. There are some things that need to change, but um, we might want to come on to those later. I think it would help if you um, shared them with us now. Tell us tell us what needs to change in Scotland. So I, I think there's a couple of really obvious ones, or at least I think they're obvious. Uh, the, the, law, the Scottish Law Commission may disagree um, when, when they release their, their um, paper in due course. The obvious ones, in my view, are the time bars and the remedies. Um, We have a time bar. We have a time limit to make the claim, which is one year from separation to have your claim in court and served. That causes problems. Family lawyers are not used to dealing with time bars. Most Scottish practitioners do not like this at all. Totally freaks them out. From the client's perspective, it's just really short. When you're dealing with the emotional fallout of a relationship to, you know, have to get yourself organised and get to a lawyer and, and deal with all of this and then then get a claim in. What I've also come across in practice is situations where there is a genuinely different perception about when the relationship has actually ended. So going back to kind of my student days and and watching friends and the like, were they on a break or were they actually finally separated? And if you think you're on a break, you're not going to serve somebody with court proceedings. So that's a problem. And it's, it's just too short. My entirely personal view is that it needs to be a bit longer, 18 months, two years somewhere around that, with a quite tight discretionary ability for the court to make exceptions to that. But I think that there is an argument that there needs to be certainty, so there needs to be some kind of end point. That's kind of my view on that. On the remedies, the really obvious one is that you should be able to have a property transfer, because what I've found in practice is most people are concerned about the house. You can negotiate a property transfer, but you can't ask the court for one. That's problematic. So, so that's that's the obvious one. What I'm not sure that there's great enthusiasm for among practitioners in any event is extending them further to pension sharing, maintenance, anything like that. At least uh, that's that's kind of my perception, but uh, others may disagree. Um, so so those, those are the two kind of obvious changes. Where things get much trickier is what's the real principle behind our law? What, what are we actually aiming to do? And I know that's what the Scottish Law Commission is, is kind of grappling with in terms of what, what should that actually be and how much do we need to articulate it in, in the legislation? At the moment, it's kind of loosely based on compensation. But as, as you can see from my fairly lax paraphrase of that, it's, it's not quite as clear as it could be. Thank you so much, Lucia. Um, Joe, I think you had some points that arose as Lucia was speaking. Yeah, I just thought it would be worth chipping in um, pretty much in support of what Lucia has been saying. But from a, a research perspective, I undertook a bit of research with Professor Fran Wasoff up in Edinburgh and Enid Mordaunt back in 2010, uh, where we were talking to practitioners, we did a survey of all practitioners in Scotland, family practitioners, and then did some in-depth interviews with, I can't remember how many now, 25, 30, uh, to get their impressions on the first three years operation of the legislation up in Scotland. And even in those earliest of days, precisely the points that Lucia's flagged were, were coming up for us. So yeah, time bar way too tight, range of orders far too narrow. It's, I'm interested to hear from Lucia that she's not sure whether practitioners will be up for having maintenance and pension sharing. And I'm wondering whether, Lucia might have a perspective on this, whether that's sort of symptomatic of Scottish and English family lawyers just having quite different attitudes towards this sort of question and ditto when it comes to the use of discretion in that down south we're used to discretion and comfortable with it I think most family practitioners would say and we are used to that wide range of orders which perhaps we do use more freely on divorce than you do I don't know you know that there are differences in our sort of family law cultures that I think make, you know, if you put the Scottish Act in front of an English lawyer, I think they would, in a sense, read it quite differently and see potentialities in it that, for no bad reason, a Scots lawyer just wouldn't wouldn't necessarily see because, because you come at it from, from your perspective, very much conditioned by the Family Law Scotland Act 1985, which is the provision on divorce legislation that was absolutely used by the Scottish Law Commission back in 1992 when they first came up with the proposals that became the 2006 Act, where in that 1985 legislation, you've got five principles for how you divvy up the resources between spouses on divorce. So Lucia can correct me, you've got fair sharing of matrimonial property, basically equal sharing with exceptions. You've got the economic advantage, disadvantage stuff. 
you've got uh, sharing the economic burden of childcare, you've got serious financial hardship and something about transition, transitional relief sort of coming out of the marriage going forward. And they looked at those five and said, okay, well, which of those is actually appropriate for cohabitants? And they said, well, mm, equal sharing, that's quite heavy duty. That sort of implies partnership and commitment to a joint endeavour. Can we be so sure that's right for cohabitants? Hmm, maybe not. Very diverse group. Haven't made an explicit public commitment akin to that made by spouses. So no to that one. Didn't feel comfortable with the more kind of insurance style underpinnings of, of purely needs-based remedies. You know, why, sh- why should I have to bail you out for your needs that have nothing to do with our relationship necessarily? So no to the last two, which left economic advantage, disadvantage, and sharing the burden of childcare as the ones that they said, yeah, those those are good for cohabitants. It's about writing the economics of this relationship and the impact it's actually had on these two people. I just think English lawyers looking at those might might sort of approach them a bit differently from how Scottish lawyers do. I think another difficulty for the Scots in suddenly having to major on economic advantage, disadvantage, in isolation of the other principles in the 1985 legislation is that you, you haven't started by doing equal sharing, right? So in a Scottish divorce you go right equal sharing and then are we doing anything else and and you might not do anything else actually so there's actually a, a, a paucity of case law in Scotland on economic advantage disadvantage and then suddenly under the 2006 Act, this now becomes the big thing. And everyone's like, oh, my goodness, what, what do we do uh, with this stuff? And Supreme Court tries to give a bit of a steer in Gowan Grant. I remember Lucia not being desperately pleased with the product of the Supreme Court. But again, that's where I wonder, though, whether because they were quite, oh, broad brush, discretion. And I'm like, yeah, broad brush, discretion as an English family lawyer. Whereas I can totally see the Scots going, oh, no, because we'd like it to be more kind of principled and concrete and all the rest of it. So, yeah, the basis of relief is definitely difficult and the drafting is abysmal. The Law Commissioner provided much nicer drafting uh, for their cohabitation draft bill than ended up in the 2006 Act, so I don't know what happened there. But yeah, eligibility also a bit of a nightmare. So yes, just to concur, but I think different. we can have different perceptions of this, north and south of the border, in terms of what is a problem and how we would approach particular issues. Lucia, of course, you're, you're qualified in England and Wales as well as in Scotland, so presumably you've got some thoughts on this idea of whether there are such different approaches in the two jurisdictions. Yes, absolutely. I, I need to, when I'm dealing with my practice, I need to either have my, my Scottish head on or my English head on. I, I, I think my, my heart probably, goodness me, I'm going to sound like an SNP advert, my heart probably belongs to Scotland in terms of the certainty of our legislation. So I, I think I do instinctively prefer that approach. And I, I suspect I'm probably more English in my approach than most Scottish lawyers. So yes, uh, Joe, you're absolutely right. Scots family practitioners hate the discretion involved in the 2006 Act and instinctively kind of recoil from it. And that's why I think the Gowgans Grant decision has gone down so badly. Um, and everyone just kind of looks at it and goes, what, what? What are you expecting us to do with this? Do what's fair. All right, okay, great. That's really helpful. Thanks, guys. So so that's that's kind of been the reaction to that one, really. It, it even kind of extends to Scottish and English lawyers reading the same wording and the same statutes and maybe reading them in a different way. So this is maybe picking up on something that I hope I'm not going to misquote you, Joe, but you said uh, in, in the webinar where you commented that economic disadvantage is actually can be quite close to needs and you know needs cases deal with you know that governs the majority of English cases I look at English cases and needs generously interpreted and the result you get from that and then I look at Scottish cases and what you get from section 91b which is our economic disadvantage strand in a divorce case and the two do not compare we are reading the same words and just interpreting them in such a different way and that's a problem which is probably a topic for a different podcast about shoot Scottish lawyers, Scottish courts, Scottish judges be dealing with economic disadvantage in divorce cases much more generously than we do. Yeah, we probably should. And it's there and we can, you know, we, we keep we keep trying to push the door at that, but it, it hasn't kind of, it hasn't broken through yet. So there's there's that. And I'm aware I'm probably going off topic there, but that, that was just picking up on some of the things that, that you were saying there, Joe, about discretion and about the problems that we've kind of got into with selecting this bit from 
divorce law, financial provision law, and importing it and really probably not using it properly, either in financial provision on divorce. And of course, um, discretion in the English and Welsh system isn't uncontroversial in itself. I'm certainly not always a fan of it, sometimes thinking that a, a little bit of certainty would go an awful long way in reducing the queues at the um, at the central family court. Um, Graham, did you want to talk about that? Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of points. I think that's, that's an important point when we think about legislation going forward, because in order to make the case for legislation, I know one thing that lawmakers, policymakers will not like is the idea of it's the open the floodgates arguments. Now, uh, during the uh, webinar, it's very clear from Lucia that the floodgates haven't opened. It's also clear from my knowledge about the Republic of Ireland, the floodgates haven't opened there either. And I don't think the floodgates will open in England and Wales, and I don't think they have to, because I think what, what is crying out is the need for certainty, because the one thing people don't have when they go to see their family lawyer is certainty. That's a general problem across the face of the law. We're not, we're not here to discuss reforming financial provision on divorce, but I don't think this the current system will stay the same for several reasons. I think, first of all, maintenance awards will change. I think in practice, people do apply a tariff when they come up with it. That's what barristers are thinking at FDRs. I think it's in the back of judges' minds. It's actually in the back of my mind, I have to be honest. we um, It's part of the net effect approach. I just don't think we can really sell a new piece of legislation on the basis that 30 judges at the CFC are going to come up with 30 different solutions. I'm not comfortable about that. I have to say that Rebecca Probert said to me a number of years ago that you have to get the law of financial remedies right before you can get cohabitation law correct. True to an extent, but actually I feel that the need to reform cohabitation law and bring in basic legislation is so great that can we do that first? But let's just recognise the discretionary system is not not all uh, what it should be. On the other hand, I think you'll find that a lot of family lawyers in England and Wales would say that the, that the, the laws in Scotland surrounding financial relief are just too tough. And we don't like the lack of discretion and we don't like the unfairness on women. We don't want to reintroduce that by cutting down maintenance to that extent. So there's a big debate generally about that. And there's a big difference between English and Scottish law that we can have about that. So so the differences in approach are important. Having said that, the menu of financial provision orders available is really, really critical to structuring settlements successfully. If you're in a negotiated settlement or you're in court, then you do want to have the facility to be able to use property transfer, property adjustment orders to make adjustments to property. It may be better for this family in terms of sorting that out, other than the situation where I think it was Joe was talking about her 2010 research, where you actually have to go and sell prime assets to fund the lump sum. We don't want to go down that path at all. And I have to say, in terms of pension sharing orders, it, it, it sounds to me from what Lucia is saying, that really isn't liked up in Scotland. Well, down in England and Wales, we like it a lot because it's a solution. And actually, if you go to a judge and a judge gives you a decision, I can tell you in the majority of cases, the judge is not going to go down the pension offsetting route he or she will go down the pension sharing route. So I wouldn't want to shut off the possibility of that remedy, particularly as the as the cohabitants likely to be seeking an award are likely to be middle-aged or older couples because it will, because it's likely to be the longer term relationships that lead to lead to the issues or the, or, or the potential conflict. Um, I do think that maintenance for a cohabitant is a sensitive topic. And I think we have to be careful in English law about that. I'm mindful on two in two respects. One is that it's maintenance that people tend to fight about. I don't think resolution is really of the mindset that we want to open this new area of, lit of litigation, which crams the already full courts. Uh, and on the other hand, there is this sort of unspoken policy that men don't get maintenance awards in England and Wales. I don't know what happens in other countries, but it's just 
incredibly rare. I can think of some situations where it would happen in needs or, or if somebody was going into a care home or there'd been an injury, but generally speaking, it would be dealt with by way of lump sum. So I think there are some nuances to work with with that. I mean, I don't think the Law Commission in England really has that wrong a lot, really, in terms of the menu of orders, have that flexibility, but we need to be mindful of the discretion. But I don't think we fall on the side of the Scots in that respect. Do you agree with those uh, points about reform, Joe? Uh, yeah, largely. I mean, just to go back to where Graham started with this idea of do we need to fix financial remedies on divorce first? That's a really interesting question. And I think one answer to that that would say, sorry, Graham, yes, we do <laughs> need to fix financial remedies on divorce first, is that quite often, rightly or wrongly, when we think about financial remedies for cohabitants, we are thinking about what they should get relative to what spouses get. And just from a sort of a policy perspective, I can I can well imagine most people out there in, in the policy and political world probably thinking that cohabitants should somehow get less, quote unquote, than what spouses get, or that their remedies should be made available on a different basis. Now, as soon as we get into that territory, we've then got to say, well, OK, what do spouses get? And if that's a shifting target, that's not helpful. And indeed, uh, when we did this project at the Law Commission, oh, my goodness, we had a shifting target because our project ran from 2005 to 2007. What happened in 2006? Oh, no, Miller McFarlane, which was actually quite helpful because it, it gave us this much more structured approach. A bit like the 1985 Act, actually, where you've got some principles and you can look at those and go, oh, right, well, which of those sounds right? So I think it would be helpful if we could work out what we want for spouses and, and then pitch the habitation thing accordingly, unless we as a jurisdiction wanted to do what Australia and New Zealand have done, for example, and just say, as a matter of principle, they should get the same. And I don't care what that is, they should just get the same, because for me, an equality principle is the governing principle here, and that's, that's, that's all I need to know. But I don't see us managing to take that decision in England and Wales anytime soon. So if we're not going to take that decision, I think we do need to decide what we're doing on divorce before we start pitching cohabitation relative to it. So that was my first thought. Just to reinforce Graham on pensions, I knew I'd get this in somehow. Pension advisory group, treatment of pensions on divorce. Oh, my goodness, people do not do offsetting unless you're extremely confident you're not going to get sued for negligence. <laughs> Pension sharing so much better, so difficult to compare the apples and pears and make sure you've actually got a fair financial settlement done through offsetting. And so not to have the remedy of pension sharing for cohabitants is really tricky because in a lot of cases, the bulk of the assets could be tied up in the pension and it's completely fortuitous. They happen to be tied up in the pension because the couple, as a couple, decided to invest the money into the pension, thinking that that's what they they together would be living off into their old age. And so the, the fortuitous byproduct of that decision is that when we come to split up, well, there are no non-pension assets or not nearly as much as there is tied up in the pension. And so not being able to get into that to meet whatever your basis of relief says in principle your claimant should be getting is just arbitrary. So that's why I would argue to have pension sharing as part of the toolbox that would be available to the court to make provision in line with whatever the substantive basis of relief is going to be. You know, so that's where you get into your sharing need, compensation, economic advantage, disadvantage, all that stuff. That's what I think matters more than the toolbox. I want the toolbox to be full, <laughs> but what really matters in terms of what outcomes are people going to get is going to be the substantive basis on which on which you're going to use those tools and how much, therefore, to put it crudely, and in what form you're going to be moving assets between the parties. Well, let me ask that question to each of you then. What are the principles that should underpin the decisions made for cohabitants? What do you say in Scotland, Lucia? This is just a really difficult question. <laughs> it's just so hard. We're obviously, in, in Scotland, we're obviously waiting to see what the Law Commission up here recommends. And it will be quite interesting to see that. I think there's two things to take into account. What are the consequences of that? What's the ripple effect going to be? So in terms of who we're legislating for, now Joe's done a sterling job kind of talking through the, the numbers and the described the different types of cohabitant. What I would like to know is the split of that. So just knowing that there's 3.38 million cohabitants tells you one thing. Who are those cohabitants? To what extent are they, the students living together, the trial marriage types? To what extent 
extent are they the kind of cohabitant, the ideal cohabitant that we all have in our head when we think about this, which is probably 20 year relationship. That's kind of, it's the kind of poor economically deprived person that we're kind of thinking about. But if actually two and a half million of those cohabitants are together for a couple of years and then either marrying or splitting up, then that's a very different factual framework and a potentially a very different legislative response. You, you you start to get into territory where you wonder if one is actually needed. And that's kind of where, where I, I touched on in the last webinar is, you know, yes, in, in Scotland, we have the 2006 Act. We can talk about how, how it's there and it's great we've got cohabitation provision. But in my experience, there aren't very many negotiations. Why is that? And I kind of want to know the answer to that question as well before I know how we go about changing it. Is it because people don't know about it? Is it because there's a total common law marriage myth? Is it because they just don't actually want it? Well, these are all. I think there's. I think there's a, a kind of data gap here for for some wonderful person to come on and and do a really thorough survey and review of all of this, and and so that we we actually know what we're trying to to do and who we are legislating for. So that that's kind of my first point. Second one is, I suppose, a cautionary note about the ripple effects, and I suspect this is going to be controversial, but hey, here goes, and um, we'll say it anyway. When I was kind of thinking about this, I what came into my mind actually, I don't know what this says about me, was a, a G.K. Chesterton quote. Um, I don't know if any knows this about fences and gates. I will summarise it for you very briefly. What, what he says is, he's talking about institutions or laws, and he says, okay, imagine a fence or a gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this, let's clear it away. And he, he then goes on a bit and says, well, I'm not going to let you clear it away, go away and think. When you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. So with that philosophical kind of seek, what that really brought to my mind is what we're proposing to do with cohabitation law and marriage law, kind of in a way proposing to take away some of the fences and gates that are up around marriage law. Okay, well, why are they there? Why is it different from cohabitation? Do those reasons still apply in the 21st century as much as they did 100 years ago, 50 years ago? As Joe said, we need to think about getting marriage law and divorce law right and think about why that has had a different status before we, we think about doing anything else. So I suppose that's where I'm coming from with that. And I, I think it does come in when you're talking about the options, because the options are, it seems to me, are a very basic safety net type of provision, kind of what we've got in Scotland. Some kind of halfway house between nothing at all and full financial provision on divorce, or just, again, as Joe's posited, just saying, well, all relationships should be treated equally. They should all have the same outcome, whatever that outcome is different pros and cons with all of those. But I, I think the kind of risky one is perhaps in my view what you're talking about in, in England and Wales, which is kind of the halfway house. Risky for a couple of reasons, or, or that's what I'll highlight on. One is that if you don't have the same protection for cohabitation, or is the same outcome, then does increasing those cohabitants' rights push more people towards that who might otherwise have married, and you actually end up with lesser protection for more people? The second kind of risk is, again, kind of related to that. Again, when I was reading for this, I came across some some theories about what is a factor in relationship success, and, and that's, do you make a positive decision to commit to the relationship rather than sliding into it, kind of called sliding or deciding. Now, if you're marrying, the, the positive decision is there, it's clear. Cohabiting, well, it might be there, but it might not. So if we're getting from that to say, well, cohabitation is a less stable form of relationship, in improving the outcome for, for people, for, for some cohabitants, are we pushing more people into a less stable form of relationship? Is that one of the ripple effects that, that you're thinking about here? So throwing that out there, which, as I say, might be might be rather controversial. Let me say, first of all, that controversy is always welcome on the Resolution podcast. Graham, is there anything you wanted to say, picking up on that, about the principles that should be used to resolve yeah, issues um, the, the situation so far as um, I've talked about resolution, I'll give you my own views because it is my own views that you're listening to today. Re resolution has had had a bill with Lord Leicester. We also had it set out in our manifesto, the resolution manifesto, which I think was around 2014 or someone might be able to correct me on that if I'm wrong. But effectively, what we're saying in the manifesto is we want safety net legislation. I think the principles of cohabitation reform are still up for discussion. I think it's a fluid thing. I think that it's partly reactive 
and it's partly proactive and it would be depend on a number of environmental factors. I know that Nick Hopkins, Professor Nick Hopkins, is asking for contributions for his next programme. And one of the things he's asked for is, has there been any change in terms of the landscape since 2007? And I will be considering that with the, the Cohabitation Committee because we do want to think about that quite deeply because he he's confident that that is a valid piece of valid body of work. I agree with him. But what has changed in the last four? I think I think Britain has changed quite a lot actually since two thousand and seven. So it's something we need to think about uh, in terms of how I would approach it. I think fundamentally the prince the principle of relationship generated disadvantage, which effectively came in in white and white. It's about non discrimination. I can't see anything wrong with that. I can't see why it should be different in an unmarried family to a married family, frankly. What happened in financial remedies after that? We all know the answer in in high value cases. But the actual principle of non-discrimination is a valid one. And I don't think it's just valid in, in our jurisdiction. It's in other jurisdictions. It is very hard for me to explain to clients why that should only exist in divorce and not after particularly long-term cohabitation or where there have been children and people have made sacrifices. Often in the modern age, I should say, travelling, that there are lots of multicultural families, lots of couples now where the the mother or the uh, the woman in the relationship came from a European Union country or beyond. So this is a very, very common thing that I see in my practice. In terms of how I think we might need to approach it, what I really took from the uh, webinar was Lucia's eloquent suggestion of, is it clear? Is it useful? Is it better than nothing? I think that really is something we should think about because if we can't tick those boxes, how on earth do we think we're going to get it through? How on earth are we going to convince the people who need convincing that we need to change the law? We've been knocking on the door now for years with the Lord Marks bills. They end up in the wash up and no one's really talking about them. I want to see this topic discussed in the House of Commons. I want to see a House of Commons debate about it once this pandemic is over. There's a big majority now in, in, in uh, government. Boris is going to be in for years. Everyone seems to love him. So can we get a debate going, please? And I think this is the way around. I think there's a route map. I think you have to do it in terms of stepping stones. I think there are some very clear angles to do it. First of all, we can change the law on death because there is a bill that's been drafted by the Law Commission and it didn't go through, but there's nothing wrong with it. And I know it can get support because I have seen research carried out by step members. I have seen work done by the Chancery Bar. I know that is a valid piece of research. I think that will get support. I think we can get that through. Why do I think that's important? Because people see the situation on death as being different to relationship breakdown. When someone loses a partner, they think that the person left bereaved should have some redress. And what and we really saw that in terms of those line of cases, including McLaughlin, a number of years ago. I can tell you that the resolution phone lines were off the wall that day after the McLaughlin decision. Why? Why is it important? Well, I can tell you, my even my mother's carer knew about it. It was news in this country. People care about it. People want bereavement rights reformed. It should have happened already. It hasn't happened, but it will happen because there's support for it. I've even seen something in the House of Commons, a paper saying not just how you're going to do it, but it must happen and it must include cohabitants. So there is momentum there. And then I think the third element where you have to introduce form is property law, because we know that it's in Talata cases that things really go wrong. How do we sort out the Burns and Burns situation? That is the thing that cries out for reform. There is an easy way to do it. There is a clear way to do it. It may be a controversial way to do it. But if you know that a property is a family property and it has been used for a number of years and there are children living in that home, why is it not the case that you look at the principle of equal, a presumption of equal share 
sharing in all cases for all domestic property. And that means an equalisation across the board. Now, that is a simple piece of legislation. It may not lead to a huge amount of litigation, and it may actually be quite simple to enact. And it would get away from this nuanced definition of relationship generated disadvantages. That's not to say that we shouldn't have law about that. But in terms of bringing in law and reforming the things that are most unfair and the things people care most about, it may be that we have to take that approach. I would like to think that there will be a ripple or domino effect where people would just say, you know what, let's just sort this out. And, and there's, you know, there's just pressure and the whole thing just suddenly changes. We did see that in terms of the same sex marriage. If you took me back 25 years ago at the start of my career and said, this is what's going to happen. And this is the sort of consultation we will be reading, which is, it's not if it's going to happen, but it's how it's going to happen. I do honestly believe that at some point, I may be a very old man by then, but at some point there will be a similar type consultation. And why do I believe that? Because in quite a lot of the Western civilised world, that is what has happened. That's how I see it going ahead. I do totally endorse what Lucia says. I think we have to think really carefully about what we do introduce. Believe you me, if we do get legislation through in this country, then resolution wants something that's going to help, that's going to help families and something that's clear and useful, because then we can provide much better service for our clients and we can run our practices better. Thank you so much, Graham. That was fascinating. I was wondering, as I was listening to the two of you, whether one of the lessons of the same-sex marriage and equal civil partnership debates and the changes was that once you introduce a halfway house that is inherently unfair because it's only a halfway house, whether there isn't enormous societal pressure once you've let the cat that far out of the back. So in other words, could you introduce something that introduced some sort of remedy that was less than a full remedy for the unmarried without somebody very soon afterwards demanding equality in terms of how the two sorts of relationship were were treated? Joe. Yes, you could, because there's no concept of inherent fairness and unfairness here. I would say to my students, don't tell me you want to do X because it's fair, because fair doesn't mean anything. It's like they say, oh, what about just? No, that doesn't mean anything either. Dawkin might have something to say about it, but as far as I'm concerned, neither of those words means anything helpful, concrete, in isolation from context. Is it Brenda Hale in Stacking Down said context is everything or something like that? Anyway, she was right, as always. And context really matters here. And so, gosh, loads to comment on from everything that Lucia and Graham have said. But going back, so Lucia says, right, really diverse group. What does that say for basis of relief? Absolutely. It says important things about basis of relief, as does her sliding versus deciding point. The problem with an equal sharing principle is that it is expropriatory of the owner of those assets. It just gives half of my stuff to you just because we happen to be in a relevant type of relationship for a relevant period of time. Even though this relationship has had no economic impact on you at all or no negative impact. So you suddenly get this windfall of half my stuff just because we live together for a bit. No, thank you. That's unlikely to be fair, quote unquote, for quite a lot of cohabitants, purely because they haven't made any kind of formal legal commitment to each other. So for spouses, the equal sharing principle has that expropriatory effect. It takes away the property of the richer party, gives it to the other one. But what's our justification for that? Our justification for that is that it's fair in that context because these two people formed the partnership that is marriage or civil partnership. That's a distinct legal step acquiring a legal status and so equal sharing is a natural follow-on from that proposition but absent that or something equivalent to that what would that be it's difficult to sustain particularly when you then bear in mind the very diverse nature of the group now you can deal with the diverse nature of the group in various ways one of course is eligibility requirements so if you're worried about people who've only been together two years fine have an eligibility requirement so you've got to be together for three years before we'll give you any remedies or you must have had children for example so we can, we can cut out a lot of the relationships that we just think, no, come on, really? By having eligibility requirements that cut them out. The people who want none of this, fine, have an opt-out agreement. 
So just as we need to talk about prenups and what have you with spouses, we have to talk about opt-out agreements for cohabitants. And if, you, if you're looking at the Scottish Act and thinking, where's all that opt-out stuff? Uh, well, you're searching in vain because they just have it in their general law. So they don't need to have it in their statute, whereas we do because our family jurisdiction is a paternal one. And so we're a bit cagey about letting you opt out of it except where we've said you can and even then we'll stick our nose in so you would we would need to have legislation that dealt with that so you're going quite a long way with your eligibility requirements and your opt-out facility even before we get to the principles but when it comes to the principles I wouldn't have equal sharing for cohabitants and I think it is fair that they not have that and I think we can explain to the general public perfectly clearly why it's fair that cohabitants shouldn't have the equal sharing principle because in that key respect, their relationship formally is different from that of spouses and cohabitants, uh, sorry, spouses and civil partners. And so we can draw that distinction and we can continue to draw that distinction. And the law is now completely open because anyone can get married and anybody can have a civil partnership. So there's, you know, it's not like we've got, you know, back in the day, you'd have same sex cohabitants saying, oh, but we can't do anything about this situation. Well, they can now. And the opposite sex couples who don't like marriage all fine. You've got civil partnership. So we're dealing with the people who, for whatever reason, all sorts of reasons, haven't taken that step. Going back to Lucia's point about sliding and not deciding. OK, well, they they didn't decide to get married but they did decide to have children let's say they did decide to live together they did decide to divvy up the child care as the way that they did perhaps within the economic constraints to which they were subject but they made those decisions and those decisions did have those economic effects and it's that that i think the remedies should deal with Graham talked about relationship-generated disadvantage, Miller McFarlane. Absolutely. I mean, that, and that is the economic disadvantage advantage principle from the Scottish legislation, even if they can't quite work out what its potential is, if unleashed. So for me, that's the right way to go. I wouldn't do Graham's family property thing. You don't want to do that, love. You just want to sort out the financial remedies on relationship breakdown. And that and that solves the problem. There's no discrete reason, I think, to deal with the burn scenario. Sure, it has implications where third parties are involved. Ditto for spouses, frankly. So maybe. But the Law Commission went down this avenue with its sharing homes project, which lasted for years and years and years and ended with the sharing homes discussion paper in 2002, saying how all that was completely impossible. And that's why we need to think about financial remedies for cohabitants as a discrete topic, which is aimed just at cohabitants, which even then is a diverse group of people. But within that difficulty, come up with a bespoke scheme, statutory remedies for that group. Much the better way of doing it. I think it would be really good to conclude with some last thoughts from each of you on what you think the future of cohabitation law looks like in your jurisdiction. I'm going to ask you to keep it brief, Graham, first. I got three points to make about it. Without being specific, what I would like to see in terms of future cohabitation law in England and Wales is law that properly rewards contribution and that takes into account relationship generated disadvantage in the White and Miller McFarland cases. We have clear jurisdiction for that in this country and it is possible. Secondly, I would like to see law that we can practice properly that is governed by the family procedural rules and not a myriad of, of rules. So we need codifying legislation. And thirdly, a law that is genuinely fit for purpose because in the modern age, we don't all want to be rushing to court. We want to be able to negotiate settlements but we want to negotiate settlements fairly and that people understand the law so that the vast majority of people who don't have money to go to lawyers understand what the law is and also have a really useful standard agreement if that is what they wish to do that that becomes a standard thing and it's not only 15% of the population using it that it becomes widespread and a thing that people just do when they buy a home or they get together or whatever stage of life they're at. So simplicity, clearness and fair and something that we can operate properly. That would do a power of good. Uh, Lucia, what about Scotland? In terms of where we are in Scotland and where, where we're heading, I would really like rules that are more useful, probably. In terms of clarity, I think Scottish lawyers, for better or worse, struggle with the statute, struggle with go against grant and just don't, you know, are, are frustrated in trying to advise their clients on that. So a clearer principle and clearer rules would be good. In terms of usefulness, I think we could help that by getting rid of the, the time bar um, or expanding 
extending the time bar rather. And I think one thing that might come out, and I, I don't want to preempt this obviously, but and I, do, I don't know what they're going to do, but one thing that might come out of the Law Commission report is more public understanding of their legal of the legal positions. Because I, I agree with what's been said that I think there is just a lack of knowledge and misunderstanding still about common law marriage and all that stuff. And how can people use the law if they don't know the differences between cohabitation and marriage and don't know what the, the remedies are? Joe, your final thoughts? Yeah, public education is absolutely key on any family law topic, frankly. Uh, people getting married today don't understand legally what they're actually doing at that point. Never mind the people who aren't getting married failing to understand that. And public education would remain essential even if we did have a cohabitation law because people would need to know that it existed as a precondition to knowing that they needed to opt out of it if that's what they wanted to do. So that's really important. The, the tricky bit is that public legal education is very hard. It needs sustained action. You can't have one campaign and think you've done it because you know maybe some of the people at the time heard that campaign but what happens two years down the line when it's another generation of people who need to make exactly the same decision and are left behind but I think going back to a point Lucia made earlier I don't share her concerns that if you introduce remedies for cohabitants suddenly lots of lots of people would stop getting married and just cohabit instead because that presumes a degree of really quite nuanced understanding of the law that I do not think anybody except maybe some nerdy lawyers actually has people are very unlikely to make decisions about their own personal relationships on that basis. And, you know, when it comes to dealing with the time-honoured objection to any cohabitation law reform, that you will thereby be undermining the institution of marriage, which is practically a daily refrain in the press the whole time the Law Commission was doing its project a while ago. What do you mean by that, undermining the institution of marriage? Do you mean fewer people will marry because of this? Well, I think that's very unlikely. You'll just be protecting more people who are currently suffering economic disadvantage that is going completely unremedied. And if by undermining the institution of marriage, you mean that somehow normatively marriage and civil partnership can't cope with another form of relationship getting some remedies well it doesn't sound like the institution of marriage is that robust but I think it probably is and it can it could look after itself and the fact that you're giving remedies to other people I think is neither here nor there Wow, Anita, I thought that was an absolutely amazing discussion. There's really something for everyone in terms of getting a whole range of views on such a complicated subject and so passionately expressed as well. I, I mean, honestly, I feel absolutely inspired by that discussion. And also, I enjoy any discussion with a reference to Friends in it. Never seen an episode of Friends. Okay, are you, are you joking? Have you never seen Friends? What were you doing when everyone else was watching Friends? I don't know, it must have been having a life or something. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you've enjoyed this, please can you leave us a review? And equally, if there's anything you want us to cover in future episodes, please let us know. Bye.